I'd like to turn to 2 Corinthians, chapter 5. Now, last week, um, we looked at the last few verses of chapter 4. Uh, I know it's been a long week. Some of you may remember, those who are here, we had uh, looked at the contrasts that Paul mentions in verses uh, 16 onwards. i just remind you of them. I'm not going to go through it all again, obviously. Uh, but he talks about the outward and the inward. He talks about the lightweight and the heavyweight. He talks about the seen and the unseen. He talks about the temporal and eternal. Complete contrast, you see, uh, with these things. Uh, the earthly, if you like, and the heavenly, um, the natural and the spiritual and so on. And we looked at those things and ending up with uh, the, the last verse of chapter 4. While we look not at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporal, but the things which are not seen are eternal. Talking about the eternal things, about heaven and glory and so on. And we thought a little bit about that. I want us now to go on to chapter 5. Now bear in mind, originally there weren't chapters. Paul just carried on. There may have been paragraphs. I'm not sure how they worked. But certainly he goes on to a new section. And yet, in a sense, he is still continuing the theme from chapter 4, from that which is eternal. Uh, we had a I called it a grand title uh, last week. It was Living in the Light of Eternity. It was a grand title, even if the message was fairly simple. Um, and I want to continue that, Living in the Light of Eternity. And it's difficult. It sounds great, um, the title, I mean. But, and, but it's difficult because we are time-bound. We are time-bound. We came to this place just before half past six. You'll be hoping that by half past seven I'll have stopped. And then you'll be home by eight o'clock at half past eight. We are time-bound. We are earth-bound. And it's difficult to think outside of time, outside of this life, this existence. It's difficult to think about eternal life, about heaven and the glories of heaven. We talk about it, we sing about it, but it's very difficult because we are pressed upon with this life and all the things that occupy our time and attention legitimately. And it's difficult to think outside, as it were, of the box. In a moment, I'm going to talk about camping, all right? You say, what's a funny thing to talk about? Well, only because the word that Paul uses in verse 1, the earthly house of this tabernacle, could be translated tent, all right? Tent. Um, and I'll explain a little bit about that. So he's continuing the theme of eternity, eternal life, and heaven. And I thought to myself, well, Paul, you've done that a little bit, you know, probably for me to criticize the Apostle Paul, but you've done that a bit now. Isn't it time to move on? And I thought, you know, that's the trouble with this generation. My generation, your generation, and perhaps even the one before us. There's not 
the preoccupation with heaven and eternity. It seems that our lives mainly concentrate on here and now. And I'm thinking, that wasn't always the case. As I read a little bit of history, I read about Christians um, back in the day, as it were, there seems to be a tremendous emphasis on heaven, on glory, on being with the Lord. Uh, They rejoiced in that. They thought about that. They discussed that. Closely connected uh, was a second coming. We rarely have sermons on the second coming of Christ. Now, obviously, we as believers say, well, of course, we believe that because it's in the Bible. But there's very little teaching, preaching on the second coming of Christ. Now, I know there are some complications and so forth, and we all have our little views. But the big central fact that Jesus will come again is plain to see in the Scriptures. And I wonder why this is the case. Is it because we are so unspiritual in compared with our forefathers? I don't know. You have to assume that, assess that. But I think one thing that is for sure is that we Christian folk, generally speaking, we are much better off than our forefathers were in regarding worldly things, possessions. Now, this might sound a silly illustration to you, right? But you have to bear in mind my background. I was brought up in a little council house in South Wales. And we had one toilet, which is outside. All right? I'm going back a long time, you know, hundreds of years, right? Bear with me. You had to go outside to go to the house. I now live in a house where there are three inside toilets. And there's only me. I've got three places to go, so to speak. Now, well, that's a silly illustration. But it seemed to epitomize to me all that I have now of possessions. I'm overwhelmed by them. Those who've had the privilege to go to my garages will see, oh, they full up. Absolutely full up. And my daughter says, you don't need all those things, Dad. Ah, but you never know. You never know, you see. Now, Why I'm saying this is we are so preoccupied with what we've got and to keep it and to enjoy it that heaven, oh yes, we believe in it. Yes, yes, we want to to be with Jesus. Yeah, but it's a low priority. I heard a program yesterday on, uh, on the radio, BBC, I think it was, and it was scientists and they're looking at the causes of decay in the human body and how they can combat that. So whatever's causing these these decays and things in the cells, that they will do something so that we will live longer. Now, it's it's a, I'm going to say a morbid, it's a preoccupation with some. We must live longer and longer and longer. And you think, why? Why? Because we don't want to let this life go and because we're not sure of what's beyond this life. We've got no knowledge, generally speaking. People have no knowledge of life. They don't believe in it. They don't want to believe in it. 
because there's an element perhaps of accountability there's an element perhaps of judgment there's an element perhaps that one day if there is a God and if this God is as these Christians say a holy righteous God then this holy righteous God may judge us and we don't want that because following that judgment there may be punishment and we definitely don't want that so the easiest thing is not to believe in God, not to believe in the afterlife. And they poo-poo us, and they laugh at us. Ah, oh, you Christians, pie in the sky when you die. That's all you've got. You haven't got nothing for now, here and now. It's when you die, that'll be fine. And we have a saying, don't they? Uh, people uh, are so heavenly-minded, they have no earthly use. I have to say to you, generally speaking, in my experience, most of the people who have been really heavenly minded have been most earthly of use. That's the way it works. So, Paul continues the thought, right, of the blessedness and uses analogy, illustrations, metaphors, whatever word you want to use, and he talks about a tent. Now, I thought, well, why does he talk about a tent? And two possible reasons. The first is, as the word we have in our authorization, tabernacle comes, takes him right back to the Old Testament. Now, you fairly knowledgeable people, you know about the tabernacle, the tent church, if you like, in the Old Testament. You know all the uh, instructions that God uh, gave to Moses about the building of it. And there are amazing details there. I have a little question to sometimes to folk when I tell them about the, my first great-grandson's name. And I say it's a Bible name, and it's, it's only mentioned, I think, once or twice in the back in Exodus. And uh, you've got to know your Old Testament well, and you've got to know about the building of the tabernacle. And there's one man there who was put in charge. The Spirit of the Lord was in him. He was full of the Spirit. First person mentioned in the Bible. And his name was Bezeziel. My daughter tells you properly. Bezeziel. And he was the man. My grandson's called that. And he's involved in the crafting and the designing. and the man. Now, there's wonderful things talked about the tabernacle in the Old Testament. And there was a generation, particularly amongst brethren folk, it may have been uh, with, with the strict Baptists, I'm not sure, that they dwelt much on the tabernacle because they saw in the tabernacle illustrations of the Lord Jesus Christ and his sacrifices and his offerings and all the rest of it. And they can tell you about the ramskins and the colors and the blue and this and that. Oh, wonderful stuff. So it may be Paul has the tabernacle, the literal tabernacle in mind when he's talking about these things or simply because he was a tent maker now those who were here on Thursday we started Acts 18 and we learned about Paul who came across Aquila and Priscilla who were tent makers and because of the same trade and they were Christian folk they got together and so on so maybe he has one or both of these things in mind and what he says is this, he talks about his, this earthly body, right? This body of flesh and blood and so on. He says, for we know that if our earthly home of this tabernacle were dissolved, decayed, we have a building of God, 
a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. Now, see the contrast. Here's this earthly tent, fabric, whatever it is made of, right? Here's this tent, and here's this contrast of a house. When you think of a house, you think of permanency. The, the people of Israel, they were nomads originally. They were traveling around with their flocks. And, and the, the church they had was a tent church. So where they moved, the tent church moved. And they took up the tent and moved to the next place. And then they settled there, and then they moved on, and they took the tent church with them. It was unsettling, literally. But he says, we look forward to this earthly body, this earthly frame, dissolving for a house. A house, a building of God, not made with hands, earthly hands, eternal in the heavens. You see the contrast? Unsettled, temporary, a tent for a house built by God. I debated with myself about uh, a few little comments on John 14. It is controversial, I did. I, uh, don't tell Gary I said this, right? But John 14, it's very interesting. We all know and we all love what Jesus said. Let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many, you're allowed to say, mansions. Ah. But is that what Jesus said? Mansions. You say, well, it's in his father's house. It must be spiritually mansions. Well, and along came then a different translation, and this different translation said, in my father's house are many rooms. <gasps> Hang him. Burn him at the stake. How dare he? And you think, oh. Now, what is right? Homes? Mansions? When you look at the original, are you ready for this? When you look at the original, it's homes. So when the writers talk about the upper room, they're not saying the upper mansion, it's the upper room. But here, when they come to translate the word rooms, they've translated mansions. Now, possibly, they are saying, well... Yes, it is rooms, that's a literal translation, but if it's in heaven, then it's mansions. And some people felt they were deprived of their mansions. Must be wrong, because I was looking forward to my mansion in the glory, and now all I've got is a room. Now, see the irony of this. And this is why I make the point. See the irony of this. What are you more interested in? A mansion or being with Jesus? I'd rather be with Jesus in a shed than in a mansion in glory without him. Oh, you're boarding on blasphemy. No, I'm not. I'm boarding on the Bible says. We are so preoccupied with the things of this world. We've transferred them to heaven. What's the matter with us? The greatest thing about heaven is not mansions. It's being with the Lord Jesus. 
And if you have any other view, it's suspect. And there we are. So, Paul is saying this house is made by God. That's what's important. It's eternal. It's a heavenly dwelling. That's the key. It's dwelling. In my Father's house there are many rooms, and I'll be there, and you'll be there with me. That's what's important. A house not made with hands eternal in the heavens. And then he goes on to say, and in this we groan. Because we're in this predicament, it's a difficult predicament. We're, in this, we're in, this, in this tent, all right? And we groan. Because we, what we really want is not, we don't want to be in a tent, right? And, clo- and as it were, clothed with a tent. We want to be in a permanent dwelling. There are masses of things that are going on at the moment about dwellings and renting properties and buying properties. Um, and as a father, grandfather, it laments me, as I'm sure with some of you, uh, that you think our kids, poor things, they can never get on a property ladder because they're so expensive. Properties look expensive. And they're paying rent, which is dead money. And a lot of folk are homeless. And... Uh, you feel so concerned for them. You long for your, your children to be settled in a house. And here, Paul is saying, we groan, right, because we want to be clothed with a permanent dwelling, a house, and that will have to wait till eternity. If so, being clothed, we shall not be found naked. And he says then, for we that are in this tabernacle, in this tent, groan, being burdened. Not that we want to lose it, full stop, but we want to have something better. And that which is better is that which is eternal, that mortality may be swallowed up of life. There is something better for us, dear ones, than this little life. There's something better, there's something more glorious, there's something on a higher scale totally from anything and everything we have here and now however good that may be however legitimate that might be thank God for the good things we enjoy in this life but that's not our prime concern it's to be in heaven with our God now in a sense he comes back to earth for a moment now he that has wrought this self same thing is God it's God who's worked this in us. It's God who's given us this desire. And then he says this, who also has given us the earnest of the Spirit. Now, the earnest of the Spirit could be translated uh, in our terms, the down payment. Something on account. You would go and you'd have to put talking about houses, you need a deposit, a deposit. And uh, you'd say, well, listen, I've got a nice watch here. Uh, can that be a deposit? No, thank you. We want hard cash. We want cash, and then when you're able, we'll have the rest of it. A, a down payment, a deposit, an earnest. And Paul will use this expression in Ephesians. We talked about the guarantee, the guarantee of the inheritance, all right, um, it's us in chapter 1, if I can find it, where you are. 
in whom you have a, in whom you trusted, in, sorry, let me say it again, in whom we have also trusted after we heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom, after you believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise, who is the earnest of our inheritance until the redemption of the purchased possession and to the praise of God. He is, as it were, I put it, I put it carefully, reverently, he is the down payment. He is the first installment. And there's more of that to come. Now, I've used a little illustration, and uh, you've heard it several times, and I'll repeat it because I like it. Um, when we were kids, my mother used to make a corn beef pie. All right? Some of you will know about that. Um, so she'd have a tin of corn beef. Uh, it was rare, and she'd put, uh, she manged it all up with potatoes and carrots and onions. Does that sound right? All right? And she'd make a pastry base and then a paste, put that in a pastry top. And then she'd put it in the oven and uh, cook it for however long, and um, that was for tea. The trouble is, you could smell it, oh, throughout the house, oh, and a little lab's stomach would go, oh, ma'am, can I have, nope, nope, that's for tea. <gasps> tea, that's three hours, four hours away, it's a lifetime. But what she did also, there was a little bit left over, a little bit left over, and she made these little, how can I describe them, like little tartlets, little small little things. A bit of pastry, a little dab, blob of corned beef pie, right? Little blob, and a little lid on it, okay? Only about that size. And she'd put, say, half a dozen in the, in the, in the cooker. Uh, um, and then we would have those meanwhile. Oh, oh, wonderful, right? So they weren't the main meal, but they kept us going until we had the main meal. But it was, the it was the same nature, same ingredients. Now, I know it's a small illustration, but that's what Paul is saying here. The, the Holy Spirit is the down payment, the, the little bit on account, as it were, until the full meal is his. The Holy Spirit grants us some awareness of God. When the full payment is, there will be the total awareness of God. We will inherit God. You are heirs of God, joint heirs with Christ. See how big this is. Sometimes when somebody dies, the first question is from the vultures, how much did he or she leave? What's, what were they worth? What were they worth? How much is left? Is, any, is my name mentioned? Whoa, whoa, whoa. Well, the Lord Jesus Christ has secured for his people an inheritance, incorruptible, undefiled, that fades not away, reserved in heaven for you. And you are reserved for it. Isn't that great? Isn't that great? You've got this inheritance. Well, yes, I believe that. It's there. But will I make it? Will I get there? 
I'll still be believing and trusting. Yes, you will, if you're a true believer. Yes, you will, because God will see to it. He's got this inheritance, and it's secure, and he will secure you for it. Oh, this is wonderful. So, back to Corinthians. Paul says that he has given us of the Spirit. Let me find my page. Sorry. Right. Now, he that has wrought us for the self thing is God, who has also given us unto us the earnest of the Spirit. Therefore, and the consequence of these things, therefore, we are always confident knowing that once we're at home in the body, we're up there from the Lord. That's our present state. We're in this body, and by being in this body, by never definition, we're absent from the Lord. Now, we walk by faith. We understand these things by faith. Because he goes on to verse 8, he says, we are confident, same word, we are confident, I say, and rather willing, now listen to this, dear ones, we are willing Rather, to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. That's our preference. Now, here's the challenge that comes to you and to me tonight. Is that your preference? Is that really your preference? Here's the choice. Staying where you are, as you are, being with the Lord. Well, I've got lots to do and lots of things to finish. And I and answer, mm, 50-50. I'm not saying that we should rush off and kill ourselves to be in glory. That's obviously not right. But Paul has got this lovely balance, and you know it well. It's in Philippians uh, chapter 1. He says, you know, According to my earnest expectation and my hope, in nothing I shall be ashamed, but that with all boldness, as always. So now Christ shall be magnified in my body, whether it be by life or by death. I'm concerned that God be glorified, whether I live or whether I die. That's the big objective. And he says this, for me to live is Christ. All right, we understand that. And then he says... And to die is gain. It is not loss for a Christian to die. The loss in the heart of those loved ones who have lost them. They feel loss, horrendous loss, consuming loss. But that's their loss. It's not the loss of the believer. It's not a loss. It's a total gain. And so he goes on to say this. But if I live in the flesh, then the fruit, this is the fruit of my labor. Yet what I choose, I don't know what, I don't know. I'm, I'm in a state between the two. To be with Christ, which is far better, nevertheless to abide in the flesh, is more needful for you. I've got a work to do, and that's why the Lord will keep me going as long as he decides to do so. 
But my great longing, my great heart longing is to be with him in glory. Paul has this confidence in God. Walk by faith. This confidence, willing rather to be absent from the body and present with the Lord. Therefore, I think we'll finish on this this morning. When are we tonight? Finish on this first tonight. Wherefore we labor, that is, we work in the gospel, whether we are present or absent, whether we're here in the body or in glory, whatever it is, this is our end, this is our objective in this context, that we may be accepted of him. Now, I think there are two aspects to acceptance. The first is, we are accepted in the beloved. That's Paul's teaching to the Ephesians. All right? He speaks about Christians as being those who've been chosen in Christ before the foundation of the world. All right? And he says... uh, having predestinated us unto the adoption of children by Jesus Christ to himself, according to the good pleasure of his will, to the praise of the glory of his grace, wherein, here it is, wherein he has made us accepted in the beloved, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins, according to the riches of his grace. If you and I are believers tonight, God accepts us in the Lord Jesus. He accepts us as if he was accepting his son. Now, this is amazing. This is amazing. I wouldn't say it if I didn't believe that's what the Bible literally says. Because we're in Christ, God accepts us as he accepts his son. Jesus speaks about the love of the Father for the Son and the same love for the Son's people, those who are in union with him by faith. He, as it were, puts his spiritual arms around us as he would his Son. This is my beloved Son, and I'm well pleased. That's what God says of all his people. In Christ, we cannot be nearer to him than Christ was. Wow. This is big stuff, isn't it? And it's true. Oh, it's true. Not some ranting Welsh preacher going on about it. It's true. It's there in the Bible. Accepted in Christ. But then there's a consequence to that. Because we are accepted in Christ, because we are one of the family, the Bible says we should live accordingly. Oh, that's a challenge. That's a challenge. I've often said this growing up as a little lad. Sometimes my mother would say, don't tell anybody who you belong to. Why are you saying that to me? Because of the way I behaved. I hope they don't know who you are. Who's little boy are you then? <laughs> Pardon? Um, Stuart Lyson. You're not Stuart Lyson's boy, are you? Yeah. Well, if he knew what you were doing, don't tell my dad. And definitely don't tell my mother I'd get a slipper on the backside. Now, who do you belong to? 
Who do you belong to? There are things going on in social bits and pieces worldwide, without mentioning any names because you know of them, um, because they're royalty. Uh, if they weren't royalty, if they were only commoners, we wouldn't take a blind bit of notice because everybody's up to all the nonsense. But because they're royalty, you expect a bit better, don't you? Some might say, well, they're only sinners like the rest of us. Well, yes. But you'd expect a higher standard. Politicians, you'd expect a higher standard, wouldn't you? The people who make the law, pass the law, you'd expect them to keep the law. Mentioning no names. If you are accepted in the beloved, it's about time you've lived up to your name. And me. Are you a Christian? Yes. But I thought Christians must be kind and generous and gracious. You're not like that. I thought Christians must love their neighbours and not mouth them as you do to me. I thought Christians were this, this, this. The world has a higher standard for us than we have. Strange, isn't it? They expect more of us than we do of ourselves very bad witness. Paul says, I want to be accepted of him. I am accepted in Christ and nothing but nothing can alter that, but I want to live in the light of that. He has an expression uh, to the Thessalonians uh, that we should walk worthy of the calling wherewith we've been called. You're not worthy to be called. Sinners Jesus will receive. You're not worthy to be called. You're a sinner. Whatever you think you are, however good you think you are, you're a sinner. And every sinner is saved by grace and not saved. You're a sinner. There's no worthiness in you. But once you come to Christ, God expects you to live up to the name. Worthy of himself. I'm just about finished. Physically and spiritually. I want you and I want me to be challenged by this. I really do. But I don't want you to be downcast. I don't want you to go out and say, well, Colin really gave us a blast in tonight. That's not really the point. I want you to be encouraged because this is the best for you and the best for me. If we could see that, living in the light of eternity, it would transform the way we think about things, the way we, our suffering, our difficulties, our trials, and all that. If we could thought of them in the light of eternity, these things are temporary. The tent will soon give away to an eternal dwelling. And boy, oh boy, how glorious that will be. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. It does challenge us. We confess it really challenges us. We seem to be so preoccupied with this world and the things of this world and the thoughts of the other world, the eternal world, are so very, very far and few from our thinking. But we want to think about these things much more than we do. We know we've got to live in this world, we've got to earn a living, we've got to go shopping, we've got to talk to people, and uh, we realize all that. But, oh, Lord, give us this eternity in mind. 
preoccupation, edge to our living, our praying, our witnessing, our working. Give us this eternity, living in the light of eternity, and all that will be ours one day. In Jesus. Amen. 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 We're singing a hymn which is similar to page 16, say 20. Interestingly, I thought, well, that's, that's good, that. Because some say, well, all right, I'm a young man, young woman, and I, that's a long time for me. Well, be careful. Robert Murray Machine, who wrote this hymn, died when he was 29. Think about that. A godly young man, and the Lord took him. Just like that. 29. This is for all ages, at all times. And this is what he wrote when he was alive, obviously. When this passing world is done, when a sunk young radiant sun, when I stand with Christ on high, looking all life's history, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. 8.20. When this passing world is done, when has sunk young radiant sun, when I stand with Christ on high, looking o'er life's history, then, Lord, shall I fully know, not till then, how much I owe. When I stand before the throne, dressed in beauty, not my own when I see thee as thou art love thee with and sin in heart then Lord shall I fully know not till then how much I Oh, when the praise of him I hear loud as thunders to the ear, loud as many waters noise, sweet as harps melodious voice then Lord shall I fully know not till then how much 
my own chosen not for good in me wakened up from wrath to flee hidden in the Savior's side by the Spirit sanctified teach me Lord on earth to show by my love how much I owe teach me Lord on earth to show by my love how much I owe so Father we come to the end of a day spent in your courts rather be a doorkeeper in the house of the Lord than to dwell in the tents of wickedness. Thank you for the privilege of being here, for fellowship and worship, hearing your word read and proclaimed. Oh, Lord, grant that we have listened and heard that you've spoken to us by your spirit and don't stop. Don't stop as we go home. Don't stop when we Resume our normal activities in the morning if you tarry. Oh, Lord, continue to speak to us that we might hear and obey and be doers, not just hearers of the word, and bless us. Encourage us in a wicked, fallen, depraved world. Encourage us to live for Jesus. Now may the blessing of God Almighty, the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, bless Triune Jehovah, bless God of the Covenant. May the blessing of God be with us until he shall come and then forevermore.